seven, six, five, Hello and welcome to From Orbit, a podcast by the Space Law Council of Australia and New Zealand where we chat about space law updates at home and abroad. The Space Law Council of Australia and New Zealand is the go-to space law and policy body. My name is Daniel Jackson and I'm joined by the one and only Joel Lisk. Let's launch into today's episode. Thank you for joining us From Orbit. I hope that you're hearing us loud and clear as we spin around in in lunar Earth orbit. Joel, would you say we're in lunar Earth orbit or a bit higher? Uh, Why not go higher, like maybe a high elliptical orbit that goes beyond Earth and back around every now and then? Okay. Yeah, we'll go for that. Well, hopefully hopefully everyone's being able to hear us as we're beaming down from our, our satellite. This first episode is about bringing you legislative updates to you at home and abroad touching on Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. So, Joel, let's start with Australia. What's happening? Yeah, so we've had some changes to how our regulations work. How great is that? So, on the 17th of August this year, there was a little tweak to how some of the regulations, or the rules, actually, I should use the proper terminology, under the Space Launches and Returns Act tended to work. So we removed the requirement from the general rules and the high power rocket rules for a suitably qualified expert to be independent of an applicant. Now, sounds pretty dry. I I can already see your eyes glazing glazing over there, Daniel. So what actually am I talking about? So parts of the rules required applicants under the Act to prepare um, plans for things like we have cybersecurity strategy, have a risk hazard analysis, we have a flight safety plan and a return safety plan. And as part of those plans, they had to be assessed by an independent, suitably qualified expert that couldn't be an employee of the applicant. So essentially, you just have to go out and find a consultant. Now, these cause problems. Because it's a consultant, it's external to the applicant, it costs money to do it, right? And then once it's signed off, it goes to the agency, and then the agency go and use their own technical consultants to say that's all cool. And so industry were complaining because it's adding unnecessary costs and a third kind of level of bureaucracy around assessing an application. So after quite a bit of advocacy, I might say, um, over the probably 2020 and 2021, um, and a bit of consultation at the beginning of uh, last year, at the end of the year before, uh, we finally now have them removed. So the minister, Ed Husick, signed the amending rules um, earlier in August and they came into force on the 17th. Okay, so... Basically, a suitably qualified expert can be in-house. Yeah, so they can be an employee. They can sit next to the people designing the plan. Um, They still need to be approved by the minister, so they need to be qualified. Um, And importantly, actually, one independent expert requirement still remains, and that's for environmental approvals for launch facilities. So that mixes a bit with state law and territory law, depending on where you're making a facility. But they can now be employees, so you're not doing the analysis multiple times over as an applicant. So it's a positive step, I think. Okay, so it's removing one step. Pretty much, and removing a bit of cost that comes with it. Okay, well, that's what we want. Less cost, more ability to launch. Agreed. We want to launch stuff from Australia. It'd be cool if we do it. We have a couple of companies you want to get there, right? And I also believe there was some guy called Joel Lisk who may have written a blog about this, and it may be on the Space Law Council of Australia and New Zealand's website. Is that true? Yeah, I think some rando called Joel did write a really short piece on an explainer on what the changes were. And yeah, it can be found on the Space Law Council website. What's that? SpaceLawCouncilANZ.com, I think is right. And it's there on the homepage. That sounds about right. 
I love a, I love a plug for our own website on our own podcast. This is great. We definitely got there. Okay. Now, I know you want to touch on the United Kingdom and some mm. all the liabilities that's happening in that space. So yeah. take stock. United Kingdom, um, very much around the same time as Australia when it's changed, it's, Australia changed its law in 2018, um, made some changes of its own to its own framework for space activities. So that's when we saw the creation of what's called the Space Industry Act of 2018. Um, because of Brexit and a few other complicating things since, um, it's taken a while for this bit of law to actually really get going. Um, you know, Australia's stuff, when they changed it in 2018, commenced in 2019, whereas most of the Space Industry Act didn't really commence until the early 2020s. So we've had a bit of a bit of a slow start there. Um, and they're doing that because they're consulting a lot, which is a bit strange, um, I think, for many of us to be thinking about this. But every single aspect of this bloody act and its regulations get consulted on. And this current one they're looking at is uh, third-party on-orbit insurance and other insurance requirements. So on-orbit insurance is a little bit different to what we talk about in Australia. We really only talk about launch insurance and return insurance. Um, but they're talking about the bit that happens when you're in outer space. So for context... They're consulting more broadly because they've been consulting on insurance for a long time and they've decided now to move into this next phase. And what they're actually looking at is variable insurance requirements determined by reference to risk. So a bit different to fixed numbers that we see in most other parts of the world. So, you know, here in Australia, we have a cap of 100 million. In the US, we see this cap of 500 million. Um, I think in European countries, you tend to see something around 60 million euro. The UK are now looking at something a little bit more flexible and something a bit more variable that happens to actually be based on sustainable practices. So we're looking at how we incentivize sustainable practice in space um, in the modern era. And the way they're doing that is actually looking at these insurance obligations. So if you are being in engaging in more sustainable practices, there's a potential, and this is, again, it's consulting, so they're not fixed laws yet, but the idea is that if you're being sustainable in space, you're doing the right thing, you'll actually have lower insurance costs, which in turn means lower costs to you. So you can do your activity a little bit more cheaply. Okay. Lower costs is always a benefit. Um, mm. Do you think this would have a flow-on effect if the UK, if this does become law, do you think this would have a flow-on effect to Australia and New Zealand and, and I guess more broadly? Yeah, it's really hard to kind of hypothesize on that one because I think Every country does this a little bit differently because there's different appetites to risk. But I think it's a really interesting way of incentivizing behavior um, by putting kind of a cost signal on it. So they're, they're talking about really looking at things like maneuverability of satellites, um, how trackable they are, whether they're engaging in quiet and dark skies practices, like whether they're looking at implementing active debris removal or in-orbit servicing to prevent debris. Like these are behaviors we really want to encourage new space businesses to do and space, existing space businesses to do as well, I should say. So by attaching a cost and a price signal to the behavior, that's actually really interesting. And it's a, it's a new way of doing it as opposed to, you know, hard and fast guidelines and rules and regulations. Okay. Well, it's good to see some sustainable practices starting to, starting to seep into legislation and regulation. Oh, definitely. Um, it's awesome. Now... I know we want to talk about the United States, and I guess I want to preface this by saying that what's not a surprise is that I'm, I'm a Star Wars fan, and I know that the United States, they have a Star Act. Do you want to take us through that? And I hear that the A in Star is actually for and, which is an interesting point. That's an interesting way to intro it. Um, 
I might provide, I might walk back a little bit, actually. I might provide a bit more context before we get to explaining why the A in star represents an and. That's all I'm here for. Um, and provide a little bit more context as to why we're talking about the US. So one of the things that's happening in the US at the moment, it's quite a big one, um, aside from the political drama that might be happening in Congress, um, is the impending doom that is the end of the FAA's, uh, the Federal Aviation Administration, I should say, sorry for those playing along at home, the end of the FAA's learning period for spaceflight regulations. Gosh, it sounds riveting. Um, the idea is that, and since 20, sorry, not 2020, no, 2004, I should say, that is the correct number, um, the FAA has been prohibited from making regulations about human spaceflight. So they weren't allowed to set safety requirements. They weren't allowed to set lots of details because the idea is that if you're rich enough to go into space and pay for it, you're the one who wears the risk. Somewhat reasonable. Now, that's that prohibition on making rules was actually meant to end in 2012. And at that point, the idea was that the FAA could start making rules about human spaceflight safety and everyone would have to follow them. But uh, the Congress, uh, being as wise and considered as they are, extended it to 2015 and then they extended it again. Um, and the most recent extension was to 1 October 2023. Now, we are recording this after that date. So you're going, what's happening here? Um, and this is where the Star Act becomes relevant. So what it's actually called, and let me bore you with the full name, is the Space Transformation and Reliability Act. Um, it's the Star Act. So it's what we call a backronym. You know, we start with the acronym and we work backwards to make it work. And this is very clearly one of those. Um, <laughs> this bill was dropped into the Congress on the 21st of September. Um, and introduced by Congressperson uh, Kevin McCarthy. So we're talking about the speaker here. Um, and the idea of this bill was to extend the learning periods deadline from the 1st of October 2023 to 1 October 2031. So pushing that deadline out again, well and truly beyond the original, the original deadline of 2012, um, to really prevent the FAA from creating regulations and putting barriers in place. Um, now, the bill needed to move quickly, right? So if it dropped in the House on the 21st of September and the learning period ended on the 1st of October, that's some relatively rapid lawmaking. And if you're a follower of US politics, you'd probably also realize that that small period of time, the last week of September, um, was a bit busy for some people uh, because there was an impending government shutdown coming because the, gov the US government was about to run out of cash. So... A lot was kind of happening and also not. And what ended up happening here, actually, is that as part of the continuing resolution passed on the 30th of September, 2023, so a continuing resolution to really get into some boring US stuff here, is the bill they passed to appropriate more money, get more debt, so they can actually keep the government open for a little bit longer. That bill extended the deadline from the 1st of October, 2023, to 1 January 2024. So it made the Star Act somewhat redundant because that was going to make an amendment which no longer would work. Um, so that's kind of disappeared into the ether at the same time as the bill's sponsor, um, Congressman uh, Kevin McCarthy, no longer holds the Speaker's seat. So it makes things a little bit more messy. But what does it mean? It means that the FAA still can't make regulations for human spaceflight. They've got to the 1st of January now to sit there and wait. Um, it looks like they've been preparing. They're getting ready to have to make these regulations, but just not there just yet. 
Um, and it's really difficult to tell if Congress will extend it again, but based on the efforts of um, Congressman McCarthy, there might be further attempts to push that date from 1 January 2024 even further into the future, maybe back to that 2031 date he originally was having a crack at. Okay. Then maybe we'll have some results from this extensive consultation process. Oh, this one just keeps on going. You know, how long can you learn about human spaceflight for? Um, you can't say forever. Like from an opinion perspective, you have to have regulations eventually. You have to regulate human spaceflight eventually. Um, you know, SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic already go to space with humans on board. Um, how much longer before we take their practices and start regulating them? Not too sure. But complex issue. Complex indeed. Hopefully we can put some regulation in place before um, there is too much activity in space. Mm. And on that note, I want to look at what the FAA is doing. I, I understand they've released a notice of proposed rulemaking. Do you want to tell us about that? So the FAA is is very hardworking. You know, they're one of the most experienced regulators uh, in the world when it comes to launch and returns. So they keep on moving and they keep on addressing issues in a relatively rapid pace that makes it hard for some of us at home on the other side of the planet to keep up. But we try our best. And one of the things we're going to bring to you is the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. So uh, the NPRM, love the terminology out of the US, uh, released on the 26th of September, which proposed changes to the regulations in the US around the second stage debris and you know disposal of long-living debris in outer space. So they raise the issue that, of course, we don't tend to think about it as much, but your second stage of your rocket, so the bit that doesn't normally fall back to Earth quickly or doesn't normally come back to land on your launch pad or your barge somewhere, actually sometimes sits in space for a lot longer than we think. Not all of these things are falling back straight away, and some of them are actually sitting up in orbit, um, have been there for decades and decades, and actually present a real and material risk to users of space. So... The FAA is wanting to really jump onto that problem, um, as well as satellites that might sit in higher orbits, and really focus on removing that debris or putting rules in place now to stop the build-up of it into the future. And to do that, they're proposing to mandate, which is always a scary word when we talk about US industry, uh, proposing to mandate five new ways of removing debris and some timelines associated with them. So they're talking about some of the more traditional approaches around controlled atmospheric disposal, which is the really technical way of saying throwing something back through the atmosphere so it burns up. We're talking about maneuvering into disposable orbits, so that might be well and truly above geostationary orbit, um, as well as this nice little band uh, between geo and meo uh, for, that's not overly used. So, you know, a bit above where GPS sits, but well below where geostationary sits where there's not much going on so you can throw a satellite there and hope for the best or a dead satellite there and hope for the best um talking about throwing stuff into an earth escape orbit so this one's a bit interesting um i've got it written down here in my own notes as yeet the piece of debris into deep space which is probably the simplest way of describing it but essentially throw your debris as far away from earth as possible you know throw it at the sun throw it at mars just get it out of earth orbit um, which is an interesting way of dealing with your with your rubbish. Another one is active debris removal within five years of the end of a mission completing. So that's really looking to future space activities and how we really deal with space debris and now and into the future. 
And the fifth and final one is an atmospheric uncontrolled disposal in 25 years. So that's the opposite of the first suggestion. That is, we're going to push it into the atmosphere. We can't control where it's going to land, but fingers crossed it doesn't hit anyone. Um, and the way the US regs are set up is it won't hit someone. But this notice of proposed rulemaking is the first step in the kind of US regulation making process. So this document sits on the public registers in the US now for well, at least until the end of December uh, 2023, depending on when you're listening to this, um, and will be open for public comment. The FAA will consider the comments that come in and they'll propose, either propose a amended rule that might need reconsultation or they'll throw a final rule up onto the internet and that'll be it. So another potential change and one that might yet again change some of the practices we have here in Australia and internationally around how space debris is really dealt with. Now, talking about the FAA, I believe there's another F, F something that also regulates in space. I recall, I think it was a couple of weeks ago that they actually fined, I think, was it Dish Space for $160,000? Takes through it. Yes, yes, there is. Um, there's the, you know, just sort of the FAA and getting to and from space with launch and return. Um, the FCC, so the Federal Communications Commission, also has some US jurisdiction over space. Um, just to make it complicated, so you've got the FAA, the, it does launch and return, the FCC that does communications with satellites. Um, for fun, you also have the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that does Earth observation. But we won't talk about them today. So the FCC um, has regulatory authority over spectrum and communication systems. So how you communicate back and forth these satellite. Now, as a quirk of American lawmaking and history and regulation making, um, the FCC decided maybe oh, about 25 years ago that they could also regulate space debris. Um, and how satellites are operated in orbit. So they don't actually have express authority to do debris. Um, they have this nice little line that says they regulate spectrum in the public interest. And so they decided that debris and debris management is in the public interest. So as part of that process, they've progressively developed rules that really talk about how you use your space objects or your satellites, what you need to do at the end of the license periods, what you need to do when they stop working, how to really manage debris so everyone can keep using space for spectrum management and spectrum systems. So we'll start with that. DISH is an interesting one because DISH launched their satellite. Um, I think at the time it was owned by someone else. Um, I can't remember the name on top of my head, which sorry about that. But they launched it before the first debris rule was created. So they didn't need to comply. They threw it up into space, sat in, I think it was, it sat in geostationary orbit for a few years, but it reached the end of its 10-year license. And by that time, the FAA all of a sudden had orbital debris rules. And so to seek an amendment to the license and an extension, they now had to comply with these new debris rules. And they proposed to do that essentially by moving at the end of its life, its satellite from geostationary orbit to a disposal orbit that was 300 kilometers above the geostationary ring. So that's what we call a graveyard orbit. Um, it's a relatively common way of moving something from geostationary orbit into a lesser important area. So time goes on. Um, it's getting to the early 2020s or into the early 2020s and they start to go, oh, this thing's getting to the end of its life now. Um, but we've just noticed it's not behaving as we expected it to behave. It's, it's being a bit weird. Um, we better have a quick look at what's going on and they work out that it's actually got less fuel than they really thought it originally did. Um, I think it looked like a melody into defective thruster or something. So it eventually reaches, reaches the end of its life and they start the debris mitigation or the end of life disposal maneuver. And instead of it reaching that goal of 300, it only got, I think it was 122 kilometers above 
the line is above the geostationary ring. So out the way, but not as out the way as it needed to be. Um, and as a consequence of that, they reported it to the FCC as part of its obligations. And the FCC responded by commencing an enforcement action. So what they ended up doing is fining them, I think it's 150,000 US dollars for breaching their license conditions by not adhering to their debris disposal or their safe spacecraft disposal plans. Now, it's important because it shows the FCC seriously considers how it how debris is managed and how at the end of its a satellite at the end of its life is to be managed. So, it's the first step. It's not the first time the FCC have fined someone for doing something in space, but it's the first time they've fined them for not disposing of their satellite properly. The last one was an unauthorized launch, so that was a little bit more spicy, um, but involved a lower fine and a company that was later acquired by SpaceX. So no consequences there. That wasn't Swarm, was it? That was Swarm, yep. Oh, interesting. So um, DISH breaking because it's the first time anyone's ever fined anyone for debris. Um, we'll see how it goes. I think someone's noted that you know $150,000 for this massive publicly listed US company is not really much money at all, but it's the beginning of making it look like enforcement is a serious, um, a serious prospect here. Okay, that's interesting. I think um, that's a pretty good summary for me pulling that off the top of my head. Yeah, no, I think you did pretty well. And I think that brings me to the end of my legislative updates. I should scream from the mountaintops. Uh, perfect. Well, thank you, Joel. I'm glad we've been able to get through all those updates. There's a lot happening in the industry, so it's exciting to hear about. Now, to our listeners, I really hope you enjoyed this. This is our, this is our first uh, go at this. It's our first test, so... If you have any thoughts or potential topics, please get in touch and let us know. Thank you so much for listening. If you want any more information, please head to the Space Law Council of Australia and New Zealand's website or go to our socials. This has been a production of the Space Law Council of Australia and New Zealand. Head to www.spacelawcouncilanz.com to learn more. This content was produced on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander country. The SLCANZ recognizes the first peoples of this nation and their ongoing cultural and spiritual connections to the lands, waters, seas, and skies.